Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the internet at commonwealthclub.org, watch our videos on YouTube, and catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Mark Zitter, chair of the Zetima Project, a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, and your moderator for tonight's program. Most of the debate today about U.S. health care seems to be between the left and the further left, that is, between those espousing moderate versus incremental or more dramatic changes. And what we hear from the right, the little noise coming from that direction, seems to mostly criticize both of those approaches, but doesn't offer much of an alternative. Enter Ovik Roy, one of the few conservatives actively supporting universal coverage and proposing serious ways to get there. Ovik is a leading conservative thinker, a writer, and an advisor to such Republican politicians as Mitt Romney, Rick Perry, and Marco Rubio. But his views don't fit neatly into any ideological box. He is president of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, also known as FREOP. It's a nonpartisan think tank that conducts original research on expanding opportunity to those who least have it, which is typically a focus of those on the left, and by deploying tools of individual liberty, free enterprise, and technological innovation, approaches more often favored by the right. His innovative views, perhaps not surprisingly then, have earned praise from both the right and the left. Conservative voices such as National Review and Hugh Hewitt have noted his insights and influence on health care policy, while more liberal voices such as the New York Times' Paul Krugman and MSNBC's Chris Hayes have praised his moral courage and creative thinking. He was profiled in The Atlantic in 2016, and his writing has appeared in The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, USA Today, and The National Review. A graduate of of MIT and Yale Medical School, he's a frequent guest on Fox News and Fox Business, and also on CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, and other major outlets. Hobick serves as the opinion editor at Forbes and manages the Apothecary, the influential Forbes blog on healthcare policy and entitlement reform. He's the author of the book, How Medicaid Fails the Poor. I work with Hobick and have gotten to know him as a member of the Zetima Project that I chair, which is a national group of healthcare leaders and policy experts from the right and the left, and also CEOs and, and leaders of the various major industry sectors. In that diverse group, Ovik's creative ideas have sparked some of the most enlightening multipartisan discussions and debates that we've had. Finally, I want to mention that Ovik was previously scheduled to speak at the Commonwealth Club in 2017, but it turned out that that event fell on the exact day that we moved out of the old building and into this brand new building, so we had to cancel. Two years later, we have him back. Fortunately, so please help me give a warm Commonwealth Club welcome to Ovik Roy. Thank you. Okay, that's the windup. Now we're going to be talking that's all about. That's recorded. This is great. So you can't back out of it. No way, later. not anymore. <laughs> now, since we're going to be talking about uh, political conservatism tonight, let's start with how you became a conservative and how you feel about the state of conservative politics in America. Well, you know. <sighs> I'd say what it really comes down to is I grew up in the 70s. And if you grew up in the 70s, America was a time when America really had a low opinion of itself. You know, people were embarrassed to, to raise the flag. We always thought of ourselves as, you know, it was the time after Vietnam, the hangover Watergate. Um, there was just a sense in America in those days, for those of you who, who are my age or older, that just America was in the decline. You know, our days of, of glory were over. And, you know, my parents came here from India and... 
I appreciated every day what America uh, offered, what America stood for, what America was, the opportunities it afforded me and my family. And I think at the end of the day, that was that sense that that America was the only country where you could be fully American by virtue of being born here or being a citizen here. That it didn't matter where you came from, what your background was, and that you could make it here. That was something that that I really believed in, and uh, and that I think is probably what it comes down to more than anything else. And why did you associate that necessarily with being a conservative? Well, that's a great question because it didn't used to be a, uh, a partisan question. That was something that, you know, and I think it's still today. It's something that people who are Republicans or Democrats both agree in. But on both sides, the, 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 pol- the, the extremes of both sides have lost faith in, uh, in that idea of America. Uh, on the left, there are those who believe that there's no such thing as equality of opportunity, that, uh, that the, the structural barriers of racism and discrimination make it impossible for people to simply work hard and get ahead and, and make something of themselves if they are coming from disadvantaged groups. And on the right, of course, there are those who, uh, who, who think that America should only be a place where, where those whose great-grandparents were born here uh, should, should be equal partners in, uh, in society. And, and so... There are people on both sides who, who disagree with that, uh, but, but, but I think most Americans actually still do agree on that, even though there are those on, on both sides who have lost faith in it. And, and I'd say that, that in terms of why I associate that with conservatism is that, uh, is that the particular elements of what, uh, what Ameri- that the American tradition uh, that I find to be particularly important, uh, particularly the emphasis on economic liberty, are things that uh, that have uh, that have become more associated with conservatism than not. Now, uh, we could have we could spend an hour talking all about what, how we define conservatism versus liberalism versus progressivism, right and left. These terms in Amer- in the American context are actually defined quite differently than they are in other countries. Um, you know, a lot of what we talk about as conservatism is really liberalism in the European context or in the 18th century context. And that's probably the tradition I associate myself more with is the tradition of liberals in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Now, you brought up racism, which is something that tends to be discussed more by the left than the right. Sure. I know you've done a lot of writing about uh, the GOP's civil rights le- uh, legacy and some of the issues of states' rights versus uh, equal protection for African-Americans. So tell us about that and where you stand on those issues today. Well, there's a lot to say about that. I mean, first of all, this is a, this is a great example of where I, I think my small c conservatism influences my thinking in the sense that um, the if there's something that the a classical conservative believes, it's that history and ancestry and culture matter. That the way a community is grows and evolves over long periods of time across generations has an impact and an importance for the way that community does today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we understand that as conservatives, then we should also appreciate that the legacy of slavery and segregation, even though slavery and segregation are technically illegal today, that there will still be ripple effects and after effects from from that period of time that are with us today, even among people of goodwill who who want to who who truly do believe that and try to treat everyone equally, and of course that isn't necessarily true of everyone. Um, so uh, that that's where I start. I start with the fact that 
um, the that when it, particularly when it comes to the the legacy of slavery and segregation, uh, that history is still affecting uh, the way the descendants of slaves fare in America today. And I think that's I think one thing where uh, where I might differ from some on the left is that I, I think that that is a uh, that is a specific problem. That is to say, um, the, 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 the fate of African-Americans and the descendants of slaves in America is, is a specific policy problem that's different from the way immigrants uh, uh, succeed or fail in America, where, uh, where in general, immigrants still do pretty well. Yes, there's struggles. The first-generation immigrants have a tough time getting through. Second-generation immigrants have a little bit better of a time. But over time, waves and waves of immigrants have made it in America and, and have, have become part of the fabric of America. And I'm optimistic uh, that, that that will happen with the waves of immigration we're seeing today. I think the, the structural challenges related to uh, uh, slavery and its after effects are, are, are worthy of more of our attention than I think sometimes people on both the, uh, the center left and the center right have given it. So I, want to, I will tie this back to healthcare in a moment, but I want to think about the states' rights issue as well. Sure. Uh, well, I think what you're referring to there is, you know, you hear a lot of Republicans talk about states' rights, and as, as I think many people in this room know, uh, part of the justification for slavery and segregation was the autonomy of states under the Constitution. That was a, a justification that was used. And so uh, a lot of people who support states' rights today, for different and fairly innocent reasons, are hard unfairly with that with that legacy but uh but at the end of the day to me what we what what republicans who talk about states rights all the time forget is that while it is true that local control in general is better than national or centralized control by a distant authority i think i think most people in san francisco would rather be run by san franciscans than by donald trump right so local control is something that isn't a partisan issue, right? It's something that we should all we should all support. But there are instances and times when it is the federal government that has been the guarantor of liberty. Um, and when you hear conservatives talk about, uh, I'll, I'll tell a story that's related to this that I've that I've told before, which is that um, uh, uh, when I when when I first started to get to know on a on a on a personal level of the Texas for then Texas Governor Rick Perry. Uh, who uh, who who asked me to brief him on some of my healthcare ideas? Uh, uh, we had a really interesting conversation about about this topic. He was a guy who back then was very well known, as many Texans are, for their passionate uh, advocacy of the Tenth Amendment, which which reserves certain prerogatives and rights to the states and to the people, respectively, not the federal government. A very important part of the Bill of Rights, and and you hear a lot of conservatives talk about that. And, and so we were talking about the fact that, well, when it came to the African-American experience in America, in America that, that wasn't actually true, that, that it was the federal government that was the guarantor of liberty for, for blacks, not uh, the states, at least the, the states of the Old South. Uh, and he, he became a, uh, a kind of, uh, he became a, a passionate defender of that idea that, well, hey, Yes, there's also a 14th Amendment, not just a 10th Amendment. The 14th Amendment is something that we, this is something Rick Perry said when he was running for president, that that the 14th Amendment is actually su- legally supersedes the 10th Amendment and is just as important intellectually, if not more so, because it guarantees equal protection under the law. And and that is, again, part it's for conservatives who talk about 
the importance of the Constitution and adhering to the text of the Constitution. The Constitution did not stop being written in 1787. Mm -hmm. The Constitution continues to be amended. I mean, the last amendment was a while ago, but uh, the the Constitution has continued to be amended, and the 14th Amendment in particular particular was very, very important. But you don't, when conservatives talk about the Constitution, they're not talking, you don't hear a lot of them talk about the 14th Amendment. They kind of stop at the 10th Amendment and and, and kind of don't really talk about the rest. And that's an intellectual inconsistency for those of us who believe that the Constitution is an important part of what makes America special and, and how it creates this, this rule of law that is, has, stable, has been stable over generations. If we believe that, then we have to embrace every amendment to the Constitution, not just the first ten. And the other piece of that is you hear a lot of conservatives say, well— wouldn't it be great if we could just go back to 1787? America's just basically kind of been on this steady decline since 1787. Well, if, you, if you're black in America, you're not, you're not, they're not persuaded of that, right? <laughs> and, and so that, that is, you know, there's been this interesting recent controversy about the 1619 project by the New York Times. Some of you may have heard about this where, uh, the New York Times is saying, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're going to recast the narrative of America to say America wasn't founded in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. It was founded in 1619 when the first slave uh, landed on these shores. Um, and a lot of conservatives have been apoplectic about this. And um, it's interesting. I've had some really interesting debates or arguments or I don't even know what to call them with some of my conservative friends because I'm like, you know, the United States may have been founded in 1776, but America was founded. The, the the culture and community of America was founded when those when those English settlers came in, you know, in in the 16th century, 17th century. So that uh, it's not it's not illegitimate at all to to uh, to point out that actually, if you think about it, if you think about American history as going back to when the settlers, the first European settlers, came back. Uh, the majority of American history has been uh, yeah, has been one in which slavery was legal, and that's that's something we should talk about. We sh- we shouldn't say you know, gosh, it's terrible to talk about that. We shouldn't treat the founders of America like they were the apostles. They were not. They were people who uh, who had qualities and flaws, and it's and we should talk about that. And and I think it's been interesting. Like there is this. Um, this desire to kind of deify the founders and, and, and turn the Constitution to this thing that was handed to us by God on stone tablets, and it wasn't. It was the product of uh, vigorous debate and compromise among imperfect people, and it created this beautiful document that, that has endured to this day and, and been uh, the source of so much of American strength. And that's the part where I, you know, I agree with, with, with the traditional conservative view, but... Where I maybe disagree a little bit is 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 that we've got to, we've got to be we've got to have a complete picture of, of that inheritance in that culture. Well, we're going to come back to some of that as we talk yeah. about some of the things uh, along the way. But I want to turn to healthcare completely here, because you're one of the few conservatives who's actively talking about promoting universal coverage. Why do you feel it's important? Why don't most other conservatives give it such full throated active support? You know, it's interesting. Not too far from here, a couple of years ago probably around the time I was scheduled to, to originally speak at the Commonwealth Club, I got invited by the Hoover Institution at Stanford University to do a, a, do a similar uh, recording and interview with Peter Robinson, who's a fellow over there, and John Podhoritz, who was, uh, I think, was then still, as he is now, the editor of Commentary, a leading mm-hmm. uh, Jewish conservative journal of opinion. And uh, 
John Podhoretz uh, opened by saying that this was in 2017 when the Republican repeal and replace debate was happening. And many of you may remember that debate as well. The Republicans are trying to take health insurance away from all these people and how terrible it was. Well, that was not the debate that was happening on the right. The debate that was happening on the right was uh, was quite different, as John Podhoretz articulated that day. He said, the repeal and replace plan is a total disaster because it actually concedes the argument that every American should have health insurance and that this was a fundamental defeat of conservative principles, the idea that we should actually embrace the concept that all Americans should have health insurance. And so I asked him, I said, if if we had a system in which the private sector and free markets ensured that every American had health insurance, would that be a bad thing? And he's like, well, no. I'm like, then why are you against everybody having health insurance? And he, he, we, we kind of, you know, that, that was, you know, so I, I made the point then, and, and, and this is kind of a long-winded way of ask, answering your question, it is a failure of imagination of conservatives to equate universal, every American having health insurance with some sort of left-wing plot. We would not think it, you know, we would not be against, as conservatives, every American having a smartphone. We would not say that you need government intervention to achieve that outcome. As free marketeers, we would not say you need government intervention for every American to have a job. We would say, you know, a free market, a growing economy, that's what the private sector can achieve. If you have the government intervening too much, that could actually depress employment. Not everyone, of course, agrees with that, but that's certainly the free market point of view. So if you're a free marketeer and you believe that everyone having a smartphone, everyone having a laptop, everyone having a job can be achieved by markets. Why do you believe that health insurance cannot be achieved through private sector innovation and consumer-oriented entrepreneurship? We should all believe that. We should all embrace that. And where there are people who are vulnerable and and low-income who can't afford health insurance, what's wrong with uh, spending something to cover, uh, cover their needs? We spend more than enough in America to cover every single person. In fact, this is one of the things that a lot of people don't appreciate. America per capita spends more in terms of government spending on health care than almost any other country in the world. There's only two other countries in the world on a per capita basis that spend more on government health care than we do. But we still have tens of millions of people who are uninsured because the cost of health care in America is so insanely high. And so if you understand that, you realize that uh, actually... It can, our healthcare system is so messed up that the left and the right can win at the same time. You can actually have a system in which everybody has health insurance and in which there's less public spending and there's a more fiscally sustainable system uh, that, that, uh, that's, that, that doesn't bankrupt the country. Uh, and that's, again, the failure of imagination. And it, and it goes back to, to, this, to, to this broader point, which is, you know, we've had this. I think what happens a lot of times, this happens both on the right and the left. Where if one side of the political debate really, really is passionate and passionately for something, the other side just assumes it has to be against that, right? So like the left for a hundred years said, we want everyone to have health insurance. So the right says, well, if the left wants it, it must be bad, right? And then they say, well, well, we're against it. Even if actually there are plenty of ways that are consistent with your values to achieve the same policy outcome. And that happens in both directions. We talked about localism, right? There are a lot of people on the left who are really against localism, local government control, because... They associate that with states' rights and the right and all that kind of stuff. But as, as we've talked about, there are actually a lot of reasons for people on the left to value local control, too. Um, so, so this is one of these things about politics that a lot of my work tries to break through, is to say, hey, actually, you know, there are a lot of things that 
we can agree on. There are ways, believe it or not, to advance progressive values and conservative values at the same time. Not every policy issue is a zero-sum game in which one side has to win and another side has to lose. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're in favor of of everyone getting covered. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure that— Do I sound like some pie in the sky? No, no, because we're going to talk about the how. I just want to make sure that we we also distinguish for people the difference between universal coverage— and single-payer right. health care that some people think is the same thing. And I have a hunch that, that your, your plan for universal coverage differs from, say, Bernie Sanders' plan. And, and this is actually a misconception that people across the political spectrum have, uh-huh. that, that universal coverage means the government r- runs a system, that it's a single-payer system. If you look at Europe, you know, every country in Western and Central Europe has universal health insurance, but only a handful of co- those countries have single-payer systems in which the government is the only insurer. Mm-hmm. Lots of countries in Europe have systems like us, where it's a little bit of public insurance, a little bit of private. Like Germany is a mix of, of both government insurance and private insurance. Switzerland, entirely private insurance. There's not any government insurance, no public option in Switzerland at all. Uh, and, of course, you have countries like the U.K. where it is totally government-run. So there's a mix. And... And a lot of my work is about saying, hey, look at these countries with the private sector-oriented approaches. Let's, let's learn from them, too. So what mechanism would you use if it's not Medicare for all Bernie Sanders style? What do you think it should look like? Well, first of all, let's, let's talk about what, you know, what are the goals? What, what is it that we want? What, what, what do we all want for our health care system? First of all, I think we all want a system in which if you've had a real misfortune in your life when it comes to your health— uh, that, that we as a country are making sure that you're protected. I think we all want that. We all want that kid who was born with Down syndrome to get the care he needs. We all want that person who, who got hit by a bus to get the care that he or she needs, right? We want people who are going through tragedies in, life, in their life to, to get cared for. We also want a system that's affordable, where if we, if we have insurance, that it's something that we can afford, where we, where we need to get health care, we can afford it. And we also all want a system that's uh, fiscally sustainable. We want a system that doesn't bankrupt the country, where you know it, it, it doesn't do us any good if, if everybody in America living today can have health insurance, but the generations that are growing in the future, rising in the future, don't have that ability. Right? Those are the things, things, things we want, leaving aside the government's role or not. Right? So how do you achieve those things? Uh, there are, as we've talked about, lots of ways to have a fiscally sustainable system in which every American can afford health insurance or every person living in a particular country can afford health insurance. Uh, the, the advantage, I, I would argue, of a, of a system in which you have private insurers competing for your business as a consumer is that there's a lot more choice and there's a lot more ability to, for the system to evolve over time. If you look at Medicare and Medicaid, particularly Medicaid, Medicaid basically hasn't changed at all since 1965, very little. Medicare has changed some, but still, I mean, why is it that there are four different parts, part A, part B, part C, part D to Medicare? Why don't we just have a simple system where it's like one insurance plan instead of having to sign up for all this different stuff and paying different premiums, right? That's because in 1965, that's what health insurance looked like. And so instead of reforming and evolving the system, it's had to bolt on these things in a very kludgy way. Um, And so when you have a system in which private insurers are competing, they're competing and saying, okay, well, consumers actually want this added to their benefit. They want vision uh, benefits, or they want this particular kind of health care covered. And the system can evolve in that direction with the right kind of uh, regulatory structure. So that's a big advantage of of a, a private system, in my view, is that there's much more of a focus on the consumer 
when it's structured the right way. And I know there's people who are skeptical of that who say, first of all, they're, they're very skeptical that private insurers will ever have your interests at heart. And I, and I get that. We can talk about that. Uh, the other piece of it is they're, they're just people who just think, well, I don't care if the private sector, if people are happy with their private insurance plans or the private sector plans. I just think it's immoral that there are people out there making money based on the misfortune of others. That, that's kind of an ideological argument. That has nothing to do with the economics. And I look at it and I say, look, there, there are, in America in general, we, we do tend to appreciate that the private sector can deliver goods and services pretty well uh, under the right circumstances, so long as they aren't allowed to cheat and, and, and defraud you. And healthcare can be that way, too. And particularly when you think about all the innovation that's going on, uh, new treatments, not just new treatments, but new technologies, all the information technology that this area is obviously a big part of developing, uh, those things can make health insurance look very different than it does today in ways that make all of our, our lives better. And you want a system that allows for that evolution, that flexibility, that creativity, that ability to choose plans that are also different based on your needs, right? Like some people may want a different kind of plan. Some people may have a different kind of risk aversion than others. And you want to have a range of choices uh, that that provides for that. So that, that element of choice is really important. And I'd also say that from a cost standpoint, done the right way, a private system will have lower costs than a public system, which can only rely on restricting access to high-cost services as a way of controlling costs and, and regulating prices, right? And those kinds of systems can be fiscally sustainable. Like Canada, UK, that's what they do. They say, well, uh, we're going to pay for everything. Everything is going to be free at the point of care. There are not going to be any premiums or co-pays. But we are going to heavily regulate what uh, hospitals get paid, what drugs get paid, or how, how pharmaceutical companies get paid, and also your ability to access those expensive treatments if we don't think they're, they're, they're good for you. Um, that's one way to do things. I don't think Americans in general are, are, are excited about that approach. And I will say the Bernie plan is not, it's called Medicare for all, which is a great marketing line, but it's not actually Medicare for all. It's, it's quite different from the way Medicare is today. Mm-hmm. A third of people on Medicare today have private insurance that they chose, that they voluntarily chose to enroll in instead of uh, signing up for traditional single payer government run Medicare. Those people's plans would be taken away from them and abolished. That's not Medicare for all. Medicare for all would include that option to choose a private plan. Um, Bernie's plan, by the way, the virtue of single payer, the way the Canadians in the UK does it, is that you, 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 know, you restrict the cost. You regulate the cost. You regulate the access to high-priced stuff. Bernie's plan doesn't do that. It says, we're going to make everything free, but we're going to pay hospitals and doctors and drug companies exactly what they're getting paid today, plus or minus. That is not a recipe for success. That's a recipe for tanking America, because you're going to increase federal spending by 71%, uh, which we just, we just we can't do it. So that's, that's the problem with the Bernie plan. I don't have a problem. I, I would respect Bernie if his plan was, yes, I'm going to have single-payer health care, and to make the math work, we are going to cut what we pay hospitals and doctors and drug companies by 50%. But he won't say that because he knows if he does that, then no one's going to like single-payer health care. No one's going to like Medicare for all. It's, the, the popularity it's going to tank immediately. Right. So so that let's have an honest debate about that. Let's have an honest debate about if you want to have a system that's affordable for everybody. There are lots of different ways to get there. Bernie's plan for many different reasons doesn't get us there. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. So you don't like Bernie's plan. I'm not surprised. Tell me more about what your plan would be. How would you change what we have today? Well, let's let's start with this. One thing that Obamacare got right, the the most important thing that Obamacare got right was that it it really tried, uh, or I think its advocates and its its authors would say, it really tried to make the individual market for health insurance work. Mm-hmm. Most of us historically in America have gotten insurance chosen for us by someone else, either by the government if you're on Medicare or Medicaid, or by your employer, by the HR bureaucrat at your employer. Very few of us historically buy insurance on the open market by ourselves the way we do for car insurance and homeowners insurance and every other kind of insurance we buy. What the Affordable Care Act tried to do was uh, reform the individual market for health insurance and subsidize the individual market for health insurance so that it was more affordable and more useful for more people. And for various reasons, I don't, we, we, we don't have to get into it. We can if you want. It didn't really succeed at that. Basically, there are fewer people buying health insurance on their own today than there were 10 years ago uh, because the system works well, better for some people, particularly those who are really sick or really poor, but for those who are making thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, the working poor, the lower middle class, and for those who are relatively healthy, relatively young, their premiums have shot up, doubled or tripled under the ACA system. So th- there was the right kind of philosophy in the sense of let's let's get let's expand coverage by using private insurers and and having the choice of plans that, that people can have and, and making that choice easier for people. But the technical details of how the ACA was designed made made things worse for a lot of people. So how do you fix the system? My model, the model that I, I look to in as a, as a, as not as a, something we should replicate exactly, but a system that that is pretty similar to my ideal system is a Swiss system, which I mentioned before. In Switzerland. There's actually no government insurers. There's no public options. It's all private insurers. But what Switzerland does, which is very important, is like the ACA, the amount of financial assistance you get to afford your health insurance slides down on a a graduated scale as your income goes up. So if you're really low income, you, you get a free ride. Your premium is completely covered by the government. But as you go up the income scale, gradually the financial assistance you get is phased out. That does a couple things. One, it means that the financial assistance that the, the Swiss government and the taxpayers are paying is for people who are truly vulnerable, vulnerable populations, low-income people, sick people, it's the elderly, etc. Upper-income people and people who can afford their own health insurance are not getting financial assistance in the Swiss system. Whereas in America, we, all of us in this room are paying taxes so that Warren Buffett and Mitt Romney can have government-subsidized health insurance. I think that's insane. Um, so, so that's one big difference between the Swiss system and our system. They achieve universal coverage much more cheaply than we do because they only subsidize people who actually need the help, mm-hmm. whereas we subsidize the upper middle class and the wealthy very heavily in our system and under-subsidize, arguably, lower-income people. The other piece of it that's important that the Swiss system does really well is because that subsidy scale gradually slides down as your income goes up, you don't have a disincentive to make more money. So in, in, in a lot of American welfare programs what happens is if you're below a certain 
dollar figure, you're eligible for the program. And if you're above that dollar figure, figure, you're kicked off the program. So what happens? When people's incomes get up, get up to that line, they're afraid to get a raise. They're afraid to take that extra job. They're afraid to actually make more money and do better in life because they'll lose their health insurance or their housing assistance or, or, or something else. That's a very destructive way uh, to, 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 to structure financial assistance for lower-income people. So the Swiss system is much more intelligent, and the ACA, because of that sliding scale of financial assistance. And you can only do that sliding scale financial assist- financial assistance if you have a private market-based system where there's a premium and a choice and your financial assistance is being used to, to shop for that coverage. So that's the thing that the ACA does right. And so what's, what's, my, uh, my, what's the plan that we've developed at my think tank, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, which we call affordable health care for every generation? It builds on that. It says, how can we take that architecture, that framework of private insurance that we all choose and, and compete around with a sliding scale of subsidies and expand that to more people? And there are different ways. There, there are multiple ways to do that. One, we reform the system so that it doesn't become unaffordable for young and healthy people. Obamacare works great for some, as I mentioned, but not for younger and healthier people. Second, we need to create more tools so that employers, instead of restricting people into the employer-chosen plan, they can give you the dollars to shop for the coverage that you want. So you have the choice. You can go to the employer plan, or you can shop for a, a coverage that you actually want that you think is a better deal for you. Also, we need to do a better job of taking legacy programs that are around for a long time, like Federal employees, veterans, they should be able to buy individual market coverage uh, in this reform system that, that, that we're talking about. And then when you talk about the elderly, people, or let's talk about actually the very low-income people, people on Medicaid, why do we have a separate system for them? What happens now is, like, if your income is up just around the level of the poverty, of the federal poverty level, if it's below, you're on Medicaid. If the next month you're above the federal poverty level, you sign up for the exchanges. Maybe another month you have employer-based coverage. It's hard enough being poor in America without having to re-enroll and disenroll in different insurance plans every month based on exactly how much money you made that month. It's a crazy system. So if we can integrate Medicaid into this broader market-based system where, again, you shop for private coverage and the financial assistance you get may slightly go down as you as you make more money, but you're integrating the same system. Your insurance plan stays the same. Your doctor stays the same. Uh, that's going to do a lot to improve health outcomes for lower-income people who otherwise face a lot of churn in their insurance coverage. And then you talk about the elderly do the same thing. So we have Medicare for Anna, Adva- Medicare Advantage, which works very similarly to the ACA in terms of people having a broad choice to buy a lot of different kinds of insurance, and it's subsidized for lower-income people. There are ways to basically bridge that gap between the way the market for non-elderly people works and the way the market for elderly people works so that it's smoothened out and there's a common integrated structure. That's the insurance piece. Now, we have to remember, I think a lot of people in this room would agree, Healthcare is not the same thing as health insurance. We've got to make sure health care is more affordable, too. And so our plan does a lot to tackle that problem, to attack that problem, to t- particularly the problem of monopoly power. So the, the biggest driver of the rising cost of health care in America is not insurance. It's mega hospital systems like Sutter here in Northern California that have dominant power and can basically charge whatever they want and... Uh, insurers have no choice but to do business with them because the, if you're sick, that insurer has nowhere else to send you. Right. So what would you do about I know you've done a lot of work in this area. 
So this is this is an example of an area where there's a lot of opportunity for people on the left and the right, for Republicans and Democrats, to be on the same side if they want to be. And that is that if you're a pro-market person, you should be against monopolies. Monopolies are not markets. Uh, and obviously there are lots of people on the progressive side who, who sh- share the concern that private corporations have too much power in America. Well, here's an example, but here's the key thing. Here's a twist with the hospitals is that a lot of these hospitals, three quarters of all hospitals in America are nonprofit. And there are a lot of people on the left who say, well, if you're a nonprofit, you have to be the good guys. You can do no wrong if you're a nonprofit corporation. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not the case. Nonprofit corporations can be just as economically exploitative and just as uh, virtuous as for-profit corporations. All non- nonprofit status is, is a, an accounting designation. Do the profits flow to shareholders or do they pr- uh, flow to the executives? Because that's what happens with nonprofits. They flow to the executives. That's why the CEOs of hospital systems make a lot of money because the money has to go somewhere. Right, so, so the so this is an area where there's actually a burgeoning, a growing concern, not just in healthcare, but in, in technology and a lot of other areas of the rise of monopolies and what we do about it, and and that's particularly important in hospital care and drugs. And let's talk about hospitals first. One thing that we've proposed is, so let's step back. What are some of the proposals that are out there? Are uh, you hear some people say, well, this is a reason for price controls. We should have price control. We should have a single payer system because if you have a single payer system, then the government has the negotiating power to tell those monopoly hospitals, tough luck. We're going to, we're going to whack you. We're going to knock down your prices. That sounds nice in theory, but there's this thing called the first amendment in America, which gives hospitals, large hospital systems, the right to lobby their congressmen. Uh, and so, yes, in theory, if the government controls the system, the government could whack the prices of the hospitals. But in reality, that's not what happens. The larger the corporation, the more powerful it is in our system, right? I have no faith, no faith at all, and neither should you, that if the government ran the entire insurance system and their own private insurers, that the price of hospital care would go down. It would likely go up because all the politicians would be responsive to the concerns of those hospital monopolies. Do you think that's similar to what's happening with pharmaceuticals already? Uh, There is a a lot of overlap between the two. It's a a bit of a different thing because, of course, the pharmaceutical industry is largely Mm for-profit, but but a lot of of similar dynamics. Here's one big difference. Uh, In almost every congressional district in America, the hospital is either the number one or number two employer. The pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries, by contrast, are concentrated in California, in Blue Jersey, States, Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So actually, if you look at some, you know, if, if you if you believe if you're a Democrat and you're like, yeah, I want the Democrats to take over Washington so that we can we can tackle drug prices. I have something to tell you. It's not going to happen because the Congress, the, the members of Congress and the senators from California and Massachusetts and New York and New Jersey and North Carolina will vote against any of these reforms because those are jobs for their people in their states taxpayers in those states. So it doesn't happen. And, uh, and so this is, this, is, this is why you need to do this in a bipartisan way. And so to get back to the proposals, how you would actually cha- solve this. So if, 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 if you're like me and you don't, if you don't have confidence that single payer will solve the problem, even though in theory we can understand why people might, might feel that way, and the status quo clearly is not solving the problem, what you, what you ought to do is find a way to restore competition, 
So right now there's not competition. So how do you how do you restore competition where competition has been taken out by these by the consolidation to these mega hospital systems like our friends at Sutter? Well, one way to do that is to have more aggressive enforcement of the laws on the books today, antitrust laws. Almost every hospital system in America should be being sued by the Federal Trade Commission, the Department of Justice, for violations of the antitrust laws that we've had on the books for 100 years. But they're not doing it, because partly because there are just not enough lawyers at the FTC. So part of what you have to do is actually increase funding for the Federal Trade Commission to go after a lot of these mergers. But, but there's something more elegant we can do, which is what we really want to do is say, you know what? If you want to be a monopoly, fine. But if you're going to be a monopoly, we're going to regulate your prices, just like we do for uh, the water company or the electricity company, right? They basically have a monopoly in, in most parts of the country. And we say, we're going to regulate your prices because you're the only one uh, selling that particular product or service. We should tell hospitals, if you're a regional monopoly, you can stay a monopoly, but if you want to stay a monopoly, you have to pay Medicare rates. You, the alternative is you can divest. Yeah. You can break up into your constituent parts. Um, instead of being a mega system of 20 hospitals, you can break up into the smaller units and then compete against each other in the open market and let the insurers play hospital A off a of hospital B off a of hospital C. And then we won't regulate the price. If it's going to be a market, it's going to be a competitive system. We'll let the market figure out what the price should be. And I think to me, that's the right balance because what it does is it creates an incentive to break up these hospital monopolies voluntarily because you'll know if you're the CEO of a hospital system over here, and the CEO of the hospital system over there, and you're talking about merging, you can do the spreadsheet and know that if you merge and you cross a certain threshold of concentration in the market, the government's not going to let you use that market power to raise prices. Every single hospital merger in America is about raising prices on you. It is not about improving the quality of care uh, for patients. That's what they all say. Oh, yes, if we all integrate, we're going to integrate all this stuff, and there's going to be all these cool databases. And No. Uh, in fact, all the academic research that's out there shows that the quality of care doesn't increase when hospitals merge. In fact, in certain cases, certain studies have shown that it decreases because it's a more bureaucratic system. But we, what we do know, and you know, we have someone in the audience here who's done the definitive work on this, Jamie Robinson of the University of California, the average price of hospital services goes up 45% when, when, when hospitals merge and become more concentrated. So the prices definitely go up, even though the quality stays basically the same. Uh, and this is a huge, huge problem that, that, that we've got to be more aware of. In any system, yeah. I've got one more question for you before we go to the audience questions. And since I don't see comment cards, Mark, maybe we can get a microphone that we can pass around, if it's possible. Uh, but first, let me ask you, you've also written uh, extensively about controlling drug costs. Sure. Some of your suggestions haven't always hewed to the Republican Party line. So I'd like to see what you, how you think America should tackle the drug costs. Well, it's the same thing. You know, I mean, if you really are committed to free markets— you become very aware of the fact that uh, the people who support markets and competition don't really fall into a partisan bucket. Um, and, 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 and pharmaceuticals are a great example of this. You know, you hear a lot of people say, well, unless the monopolies can, can raise prices by 12% a year, we won't have any new cures. We won't have any innovations. You probably hear a lot of people in this part of the world say that. The irony is all the innovation in, 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 uh, in medicine, in pharmaceuticals, is not happening at Pfizer or Merck or even Amgen. 
It's happening at the unprofitable companies that are five years old that are being funded by venture capital and Wall Street that are losing money every year until their drug finally makes it through the FDA and they can actually get on the market. Those are the companies that are developing all the innovations, um, not the big $200 billion market cap monopolists. And, and this, is, this, is, this is the key thing. Again, monopolies are not markets. And so there's two elements. One, we have in part of the healthcare system and part of the med- medical system a, actually a reasonably good, good setup where a drug is on patent. And yes, the prices might be egregious, but eventually that patent expires and the generics come online and that drug becomes really cheap. Mm-hmm. And even if the prices are it may be excessive for that 10 years where the patent works. When that patent goes off and the generics, generics come in, you know, you think about uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs. For, for, for a time, you know, in the early 2000s, Pfizer's Lipitor was the best-selling drug in America. I think $20 billion a year in revenue, something like that. Uh, now it's generic. You can buy it for less than a bottle of water at the, you know, at the, at the CVS. Um, so that's amazing, right? That's a huge public health good, and we should always be aware of that. And actually, America leads the world in terms of the percentage of prescriptions in America written for inexpensive generic drugs. 90% of all prescriptions in America are written for generic drugs. So only 10% of prescriptions are written for these costly branded drugs. But we still spend double what every other country in the world spends on drugs. So how is that happening? It's because that 10% that's left, we're paying way too much for that. Uh, And again, that's not because we have a free market system. It's because the government through both patents and other means, enforces monopolies and then says to the monopolist, charge whatever you want and the taxpayer will be on the hook. And isn't that great? Uh, and that's not, that's not free markets. That's not a free market system. When the government is f- saying there's a monopoly and prohibiting competition, and by the way, the FDA has this incredibly complex regulatory structure that makes certain types of, uh, of medicines extremely expensive to develop, that's not a market either. So how do we solve that problem? Uh, we have we published a white paper at our, at our think tank, and you can see all this stuff at, at freeop.org, f-r-e-o-p-p.org, called the competition prescription, mm-hmm. and it it makes this point that a big part of the solution is to make sure that we get rid of the artificial monopolies. It's one thing to reward a company that has developed a drug and say, okay, you can have your ten years of market exclusivity where you make your profits and 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 get your returns, but once that that period of time expires. It should expire. And for too many drugs and for a, a rising number of drugs in America for various reasons, that's not true. There's a whole class of drugs called biologic drugs, which were developed by the biotechnology industry. The first one was developed by Genentech here in South San Francisco. Those drugs have a, a different legal structure than the traditional pills like Pfizer's Lipitor, where when those patents expire, it's much harder to develop a generic or a so-called biosimilar to then compete and lower the price and make those drugs as cheap as generic Lipitor is today. And that's not because of patents. That's not because of innovation. That's because of laws passed by Congress and rules passed by the FDA, enforced by the FDA, that make it very difficult for competitors to come on the market. And there's all sorts of areas. Drugs for rare diseases, same thing. The government has created all these barriers to competition. So as a result, we have a rising number of drugs. Basically, everywhere where there's monopoly and government-enforced monopoly, prices are skyrocketing. And everywhere where there's competition, prices are stable. And if you look at pharmaceuticals, if you look at hospitals, this is, this is true all over the place. If you look at the drug market in general, in all those areas, the 90% of, uh, of prescriptions where there's competition, everything is fine. 
in the 10% where competition restriction is restricted, prices are going up. So again, a lot of our work is it's a lot of it's kind of it's 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 very wonky, but it's there are all these subtle loopholes, kind of like the tax code. There are all these subtle loopholes in the regulations and the laws that companies take advantage of and exploit to preserve their monopoly power and their market exclusivity for longer and longer and longer. And if we reform those provisions and loopholes and laws and create that system where okay, you have your period of time where you're exclusive, and then there's competition and and cheap prices, we can accomplish a lot. We, we still have to say, though, in those areas where there's monopolies, the government does have a legitimate role in making sure you don't exploit that monopoly power to charge unaffordable prices. And how do we do that? Well, there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, and I support many of the different solutions. And this is to your point where I think a lot of Republicans and some and many Democrats uh, really are uncomfortable because uh, the president, for example, has said, let's... Um, Let's benchmark what Medicare does to subsidize uh, these kinds of drugs to what uh, those countries uh, uh, are paid in other countries, or what, those, what those companies are paid in other countries. Have an international index in which, uh, which, which, uh, which uh, determines what Medicare will pay for those drugs. I think that's perfectly reasonable because that is a market-based solution. When Pfizer or Amgen goes to France or Germany and says, okay, we'll accept the price that you're giving us to, to, to supply our drug to you, it's voluntary. Uh, France is not forcing Amgen to supply their drugs to France. Uh, if France says, we'll pay you zero for that drug, Amgen's not going to sell that drug in France. So it's a two-way street. It's not a dictated price by, by the, government's, uh, the government of France. So that is a kind of market-based solution where you say, hey, there's all these negotiations going on around the world. Let's incorporate that into uh, the way we think about the monopoly price here. That's an example of, of one thing we can do. Another thing we can do is limit price increases to consumer inflation, particularly when it comes to limiting what taxpayer subsidies, how t- taxpayer subsidies flow uh, to, to drug companies. Uh, in Medicare and Medicaid, there's a reform that was just passed out of the Senate Finance Committee to limit growth of, uh, of taxpayer subsidies in Medicare and Medicaid to drug companies to inflation. Say, so, you know what? We, you know, we do want you to, to, we do want these drugs to be accessible to seniors, but the subsidies we give you uh, are going to grow at inflation. They're not going to grow at whatever you decide they are. You're not, if you want to charge 15% more next year for your drug, you can do that, but we're only going to subsidize inflation, up to inflation. And now you have Republicans, you have the Wall Street Journal saying this is price controls. It's not price controls. It's subsidy controls. It's saying we are not going to subsidize uh, these drugs more than inflation. That makes the system more fiscally sustainable. It saves the taxpayer an enormous amount of money. But, you know, but this is the, this is the thing that sometimes, you know, as a, as a free marketeer, uh, I get depressed about the Republican parties. You hear a lot of people say, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're against subsidies for poor people to have health insurance. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them, many of them. But they're, but they're, all, but they're against reducing subsidies for multinational drug companies. So, you know... That makes no sense to me. If you're a fiscal conservative and you want to reduce government subsidies, you should want to reduce government subsidies to multinational corporations because they don't need the money. They, they may say they do, but they don't. <laughs> you know, Medicare Part D, the Medicare uh, drug benefit, was only created in 2003. It only went into effect in 2005. Somehow innovation happened before 2005 in America. And yet every drug company is out there saying, if you actually grow these subsidies at inflation, we're all going to die. No, we're not all going to die. Mm-hmm. Right. Let me go to some audience questions. Hi. 
so my question was around um, any potential loopholes that you might see when there is a competitive market that companies might take advantage of. So if you had to hack your solution, how would they hack my solution? How would they hack your solution? As I've seen sometimes with like disproportionate share hospitals being sort of like gobbled up by other hospital systems to kind of take advantage of 340B pricing. Mm -hmm. I figured there must be something that maybe the free market would do similarly, where they would take advantage of some of the free market loopholes. Well, the the most important thing always is to, is to, as I mentioned, is to tackle monopoly power. That's the biggest problem. Where there is competition, um, prices come down. And where there's monopoly power, and there are no price controls, because we don't have price controls really in America. We do in, in some cases, but generally not. If monopolies can just charge whatever they want, that's the problem. So we have to have a comprehensive solution that is about curtailing monopoly power and, and eliminating wherever possible barriers to competition. So in terms of what's the hack, the hack is always uh, to, to find areas where the government has erected barriers to competition for one reason or another. An example of this at the state level are certificate of need laws. So a number of states, and I, California, I believe, is one of them, that has these laws where if you want to build a new hospital, so we, we, Sutter's a monopoly, right? Let's build a new hospital to compete with Sutter and deliver babies and, 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 and treat heart, heart stroke patients at a cheaper price than Sutter's charging. Let's do that. Well, you can't because you need the government to approve that or to certify that there's a need for your new hospital. And who do they consult to figure out whether there's a need for your new hospital exist? Who do you think? <laughs> so... So that's those. There, there are barriers to entry like that. I mean, it's already hard enough to build a hospital because it's a very capital-intensive thing. You want to build a hospital, it costs a lot of money, right? Even if you had no regulations, it would cost a lot of money. But on top of that, we'd throw a lot of barriers to make it really, really hard to do that. And then there are all sorts of anti-competitive provisions that hospitals stick into contracts with insurers where they say, well, you know, uh, let's say there's a hospital system that has a hospital in San Francisco and then a hospital somewhere up north near Oregon, a more rural area where it's basically the only hospital in town. Then the, the system will then say to the insurer, to Blue Cross or Blue Shield, say, well, if you contract with that hospital up there in Oregon, near Oregon, the Oregon border, you have to have an exclusive contract with us here in San Francisco when there might be alternatives that are lower cost. So they'll do things like that that are technically illegal, but then they say the contract is confidential. You, can't, you, you and the insurer cannot complain that, uh, that we actually are doing this. And, of course, the consumer doesn't know anything that's going on. And the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission... Or the state government, it can't subpoena every single insurer or hospital contract to see where the mischief is. Uh, so that's a big problem. And by the way, sometimes the insurers go along with it because at the end of the day, if premiums are higher and they're making 5% of the premium as their profit, they make more money if the premiums are higher. Sometimes the insurers are just complacent about it too. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so only if the consumer is in charge, only if the patient says, you know what? I'm going to take my business to this insurer versus this insurer if the premiums are too high. That's when the insurers are then forced to say, you know what? Um, I'm going to work really hard to drive premiums down by driving costs down. But they can't do it if there's monopoly. So it's all about thinking about every single, every single policy, every single law that, that restricts competition. And how do you do that? You have to really, really 
make sure that you're listening to the innovators. Make sure you're listening to the people who are trying to compete, trying to start new hospitals, new specialties, new clinics uh, 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 to, to lower prices. Great. Thank you. Next question. We're running short on time. So Sorry, I'm being it. very long-winded. That's I'll right. try to be quicker. Keep the questions. The answer quick. Try to be brief. Um, you brought up, you started this conversation talking about the history of America and sort of the racial and economic breakdown of our nation, and then later talked about Switzerland as an example of a country that you thought we could emulate from their healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me in some ways to see an obvious kind of corollary between countries that have such different racial and economic breakdowns. How do you see something like a Swiss system with a sliding scale applying to something like the U.S., where a conserv- in my mind, a conservative would immediately, immediately say the people the top are effectively going to be double taxed. They're paying high taxes. And then again, they're paying for the top of the sliding scale. And how do you think that that could kind of be applied over here, especially against a party that I think would naturally argue against that? Sure. So the the top federal tax rate in Switzerland, do you know what it is by any chance? It's 11%. So the Swiss are actually doing pretty well in terms of having a robust safety net that protects poor people and sick people and having a tax system that's attractive to rich people as well. That's why all the rich people want to move to Switzerland. Um, so it can be done. Uh, and the, the, other, the first part of your question actually is arguably the mo- more important one, which is uh, uh, there is a view among uh, many people that poor people can't shop, that, 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 that if, if you give them choices uh, and, and ask them to choose what's the best deal for them, they're not going to do it. Um, and that only highly educated upper income people can be uh, sophisticated consumers. I have the complete opposite view. People who buy spend five dollars for a cup of coffee are not sophisticated consumers. <laughs> On the other hand, people who make ten thousand dollars a year, where every cent matters to their livelihood, they are the most sophisticated consumers on the planet if you give them the tools and the choices to do so. Um, and so we have to actually look at it the opposite way. A lot, a lot of the, the so-called research that claims that consumers can't shop for health care is done on rich people and who, who, don't, who don't really care because they're totally insensitive to the price. But poor people actually really do care about the price of things. And most innovation, most true innovation happens because it's lower income people who see that, see that value of you know, something as, as mundane as being able to buy, uh, you know, toothpaste at a lower price, a slightly lower price at one place versus another. Um, so, so I actually think that the people who can teach us the most about, about choice and competition uh, and what consumers actually want are the people for whom every dollar really matters. Great. Time for one more quick question and a quick answer. I think you're... Sorry, Mm-hmm. ideas are conceptually very, very attractive. I'm frustrated with both Bernie and Elizabeth and now you because you haven't said how we get there. Taking power from rich institutions, corporations, politicians, lobbyists is on a de facto basis practically impossible to yeah, do. So how do we get there? Great question. So if you want to read my 100-page white paper on how we get there, <laughs> go to freeop.org, F-R-E-O-P-P.org. But more, more uh, seriously, the, the, you have to do things gradually. This is not just true in terms of dealing with the lobbyists, but it's true of all of us. We all, we, we all have our quibbles and our dissatisfactions with the healthcare system, but we're also very nervous when a politician tells us, I'm going to completely make it better by totally blowing it up and starting over. 
many of us are risk averse because we know that there's, you know, like whatever's wrong with our health insurance, we, we want a system that our, at least that health insurance is there to protect us. And we don't want a system that is not there to protect us. And so all the changes we make have to be gradual. We have to have a 30 to 40 year win, a, a, a view of how we glide and evolve the healthcare system in a different direction. And that's also true for the lobbyists, because if you do something that suddenly takes away, if you cut what hospitals are getting paid by 50 percent, you know, the lobbyists are going to be all over that. Right. But if you create a system where that that evolution to a fairer and more competitive system happens gradually over time, one, two percent a year, year after year after year. The system we have today was built not in a day. It was built in 75 years of, of repeating the same mistakes. So you need a lot more time to evolve away from that. And you have to be very gradual about it. You can't go for the quick fix. Great. One more very quick question. Quick answer. Yeah, I noted uh, two parts of uh, your your discussion. One was you brought up local control in the Tenth Amendment, uh, and you also criticized Medicare for All uh, on the national level with Bernie Sanders. Here in California, uh, Governor Gavin Newsom ran on a platform of Medicare for All, which would require federal waivers. So I'm wondering, uh, what's your opinion of uh, local initiatives? that perhaps you wouldn't agree with, but sure. in the spirit of a laboratory of democracy. Sure. So um, actually, we wrote a white paper at freeapp.org called The Price of Single Payer that, that studied New York State's efforts to establish single payer in New York. Um, and uh, the, 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 there's, a, there's a lot of things that basically make it impossible to do at the state level. The, 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 there's, there's two big, big problems. The first is that um, so much of of health insurance today is funded by the federal government and by uh, pri- the private sector that for a state to take on all that responsibility fiscally is basically impossible. You'd have to double or triple or quadruple what the state is spending overall, not just on healthcare, but overall in order to do that. And, and if you raise the taxes to do that, you basically drive out all the businesses. It's incredibly economically destructive. So that's num- the number one reason why at the state level it's impossible to do. The number two reason is perhaps more mundane, which is that a lot of companies self-insure. They don't actually use an insurance company in the traditional way. A company like Apple or a company like Google, they don't actually contract with an insurance company. They pay directly for the healthcare costs of their employees and may uh, use a, a third party to help negotiate the prices that, that they pay to hospitals and doctors. So those self-insured uh, uh, companies like Apple and Google, large employers, they're not, they're not regulated by the state level. They are, they are regulated by federal law, a federal law called ERISA. And so states are not actually allowed to interfere with those arrangements. And so it's actually illegal for a state to enact single payer because to do so, you'd actually have to repeal ERISA, which, of course, is not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, act of Congress for that. Great. So many great questions. I'm sure there's plenty more, uh, but we are out of time. So I'd like to thank... Ovik Roy, the president of the Foundation for Research and Equal Opportunity, and thank our audience here in San Francisco and also on radio, television, and the Internet. I'm Mark Zitter, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. All right. Thank you. Thank you.